Welcome to episode 80 of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, a family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm John Hickner, a family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, another family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. Uh, listeners know that I have a strong affinity for Civil War history, and I want to point out that on this day in history in 1885, uh, General Grant, our former President Grant, died at the age of 63. If you haven't read his memoirs, they are remarkably clearly written, beautifully written, and in the final days of his life, while he was in just severe pain and taking opioids uh, uh, to be able to uh, be comfortable. Also on this day in history, in 1960, the very first contraceptive pill was available for purchase in the United States, opening up a whole series of controversies, but also reproductive choices for women. Thanks, Henry. On this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want to get all the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence Plus, where you get a poem every day, plus a great primary care reference thousands of interactive decision support tools, 800 chapters, and uh, a focus on primary care, hospitalist care, and uh, emergency and ED care. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. For a nominal annual fee, you can get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians for listening to the podcast and any others from 2021. Just go to IAFP.com. Click on online IFP education webpage and find our podcast. This week, we're going to talk about cannabis use in patients with rheumatologic disorders, platelet-rich plasma injections for persons with plantar fasciitis, while we're talking about injections, epidural steroid injections for sciatica, and COVID mortality and race. Kate, take it away. All right, so bear with me while we work our way through this article. So this is a study that comes from, uh, I don't speak French, Guillard at all, uh, and was published in the journal Rheumatology. So it, this, this took me down an amazing Henry Berry-induced rabbit hole because Henry wrote this poem, and he's going to have his chance to weigh in in a few minutes. But the authors were trying to... To, to answer the question of how common is cannabis use among persons, people with rheumatologic disorders, and does it help with pain reduction? And uh, it's, it's hard to study cannabis use because it's a, it's a schedule one medication at the federal level, right? So you can't really do randomized controlled trials of cannabis the way that most people use cannabis. So you can, you can study FDA cleared medications the way that we'd like to study medications, right? And in RCTs. Um, but otherwise, you're sort of stuck with with observational studies, people with self-reporting. And obviously, there are barriers to how people self-report a medication that still has a, a fair amount of stigma. It's, it's lessening, but people may or may not report that faithfully. So they did a very expansive search, um, and they included uh, a lot of observational trials because, again, that is what most of the evidence is in, in the realm of cannabis. Um, and they were they were, again, looking to sort of describe how do people, how, how often do people with rheumatologic disorders use cannabis? And does it work? Do they report that it's effective? And again, that's not ideal. We'd rather randomize them and be able to, to have a placebo arm and then say, does it work better than placebo? Does it work better than, than other treatments? But we have what we have because, again, the, it's, it's difficult to, uh, to, to do this kind of research in the, the environment that we have right now. So they wound up including 23 studies, about 14,000 patients with different rheumatologic disorders. 
and what they, uh, they they did not do some other things that we like to see in in meta analyses. They didn't talk about the methodologic quality of the studies. Um, they didn't do an amazing job of describing how they included and excluded studies, and that'll come up again later um, as a little bit of a problem. Uh, Fifteen studies reported cannabis use, and they reported about forty percent of patients describing using it. Um, only five of the studies specifically described whether patients said that they reported using cannabis for, for medicinal purposes, so specifically to treat their rheumatologic disorders. Um, and in the subset of patients specifically with fibromyalgia, they found almost 70%, 68% plus reported using the cannabis for, for their disease. So the baseline rate of recreational cannabis use in the U.S., uh, and this is from 2016-17 from from BARFIS data, uh, ranged depending on the state and the age of the person, uh, between 10 and 25%. So that was definitely above baseline in the US. The patients did report uh, some borderline clinically meaningful, but probably clinically meaningful reduction in pain. Again, all self-report, this is not placebo uh, controlled data. So it, it is a little bit, uh, it, it's not the best data that we have. It, it's probably, you know, these are, can be difficult to control. We're the, the whole rest of the podcast, we're going to talk about, you know, how, how ineffective some of our, our standing treatments are for, you know, complex pain disorders, uh, although not necessarily rheumatologic. Henry made, a, made mention that uh, there, there is some other data that wasn't included uh, in, this, in this study. That is a little bit different. Those are, are you know, synthetic FDA approved uh, or approved in other countries um, cannabinoids. So that that may explain why this study didn't find those in their um, search. In their search, the, the another problem that they had um, is that they actually didn't include fibromyalgia in their in their published search strategy, which is weird. The editor in me is like absolutely shrieking right now because I'm not sure how this study even even got published as it was because that's something that's fairly easy to fix. So they didn't include fibromyalgia in their original search study. And it looks like it was a post hoc decision to include it because it came up as they were searching. Um, so then they said, okay, we're going to go ahead and include it in our analysis. Uh, so, okay, bottom line, uh, it seems like it's, it is very commonly used. Uh, it, it may be effective, or patients at least report it's effective. So we should be on the lookout for, for cannabis use in our patients who have rheumatologic disorders. Henry, you wrote this originally. Uh, what did I get right and what did I get wrong in my... Well, I, thanks, Kate. I think you did a really good job of summarizing. This was really a problematic systematic review for the reasons that you pointed out. And I think the bottom, the, the take home messages for me were that uh, cannabis use was more common among patients with rheumatologic disorders. That I think you can trust these data reasonably well. Whether or not this was being used for recreational purposes or therapeutic purposes is, is challenging. Um, to me, what this points out, though, is that if this was really attempts at self-treatment, that self-treatment with cannabinoids are fairly prevalent and that the current therapies or the access to therapy are inadequate or way too expensive and patients are resorting to other kinds of, of measures. Yeah. John, what do you think? This, this is here to stay. That would be my comment. People are, are going to use marijuana. There's no question about it. They do. They're going to. It may become more widespread. And it is tough to say whether it really helps or not. There have been other studies of pain relief from marijuana, all of which have been pretty equivocal. But we just need to be aware, I think, that people are using it and uh, perhaps uh, don't, don't smoke and drive. That might be the best advice. 
Yeah, I guess the question is, uh, you know, to me, the evidence isn't strong enough for me to go out of my way to necessarily recommend it. Uh, I guess that's the question is, as a physician, mm-hmm. would you recommend this to your patients with fibromyalgia or other conditions? Or is this something you just kind of let them discover on their own and don't maybe actively discourage it? Kate? So last thing I'll say about this, uh, I read the, there was a letter to the editor that was published in response to this, and it, it came from a, uh, a researcher who studied cannabis use disorder. Um, and his point was uh, that, that it's growing in prevalence as we see an increase uh, among patients with, uh, with, with musculoskeletal disorders, including rheumatologic disorders. And his point was basically, as we see an increasing prevalence in, in cannabis use, we're seeing an increasing prevalence in, in cannabis use disorder. Um, so that, that may be the biggest takeaway for us, uh, in addition to the fact that our patients are going to be using it, that they, uh, that they may be developing problematic use as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly a concern. Anyway, um, yeah, and, and, and in states where you have to have a medical reason to get cannabis, which used to be the case here in Michigan, I uh, know people who uh, had developed terrible uh, osteoarthritis of the knees uh, in order to get their their, medic, their cannabis license, which was miraculously cured. So I think you have to take it all with a grain of salt, particularly in that self-reporting data. Henry, uh, give us a quiz. Thank you. Uh, since we are now in summer months, officially it's been you know, we're two days after the, the, the summer solstice, um, it is mosquito season. So I thought that it might be important to understand that these little critters are not just a nuisance. They are cold-blooded killers. Which of the following diseases are not transmitted by mosquitoes? A, malaria. B, West Nile virus. C, dengue. D, typhoid. E, yellow fever. Stay tuned. Thanks, Henry. And uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about steroids for plantar fasciitis next. Thank you. This uh, next poem asks the question, are platelet-rich plasma injections more effective than steroid injections in patients with plantar fasciitis? And this was by Homan and colleagues published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in May. So, They searched several databases looking for randomized trials that compared injections of platelet-rich plasma with injections of steroids in patients with plantar fasciitis. Now, they explicitly excluded studies that used saline or any other analgesic wing unless there was also a study that included the steroids. Oh, by the way, when they reported the data in those studies that included those wings, they didn't include any comparisons against the, the saline or placebos. And this is really important because um, many other studies of painful states really find a high <clears throat> placebo response. They also didn't really search the, the gray literature. They didn't look for unpublished studies. Ultimately, they found 15 studies with uh, just over 800 patients, a little more than half, received the platelet-rich plasma. Only one of those studies was at low risk of bias, and nine were at high risk of bias. So a lot of crappy little studies, to paraphrase Mark. And in spite of all of the differences in the methods of preparing the platelet-rich plasma, the doses of steroids, different outcome measures, the authors chose to pool the data rather than just doing like a narrative review. What did they find? Well, After one month, they found there was no difference in pain between the steroids and the platelet-rich plasma. And when they went out three, six, or 12 months, the patients who got the platelet-rich plasma had more pain relief than those treated with steroids, but the differences were not clinically important. 
they don't report any data about the harms of treatments. Now, I went back and found a 2017 Cochrane review that looked at steroid injections compared with placebo or no treatment. Um, and they found that the, the evidence of, was of low quality, that there might be a slight reduction in heel pain one month later, but not afterwards, and not great confidence just given the quality of the studies. So when you take that into effect with this systematic review, the, frankly, the overall quality in my mind of, and the heterogeneity makes it difficult for me to conclude definitively if injecting um, anything into the heels of patients, let alone platelet-rich plasma, was more effective. Now, the authors, on the other hand, conclude quite the opposite. They think that this is the best thing since sliced bread, but then again, they probably get paid handsomely to perform those injections. Mark. Yeah, and the injections are often not paid for by insurance, right? And so, you know, I think this uh, this whole area of platelet-rich plasma is kind of the wild, wild west in the orthopedic world, and um, we have very little consistent evidence of benefit for this condition, for plantar fasciitis, or for anything else. And we have a lot of people who really, really want to do it. And, you know, frankly, when you have, uh, you know, moderately severe uh, pain from these conditions, people are, and we don't have a lot of terrific treatments, people want to try stuff. And, uh, you know, we know steroids, at least for knee injections, for example, do provide some short-term benefit, probably for plantar fasciitis. Uh, it's too bad we didn't have uh, a placebo injection group and a no injection group to really sort out that placebo effect. Kate? Yeah, I agree. I've, I've long been a platelet-rich plasma skeptic, uh, just because the, the evidence really does not seem to, to suggest that they are any better than injecting anything else. Um, and I'm, I'm very open to being wrong about this if, if we somehow, sometime come up with a better study or any study, really, that, that suggests that they produce long-term benefit. I think some people will take the, you know, the short-term benefit, um, it, it, but I'm not sure that, that this is going to be the, the thing that proves, you know, it, it, I guess it's like a lot of things. The people who believe in it are going to say that this, this confirms their bias, and the people who don't are going to say that it confirms theirs. So. There you go. Okay, it's time for my poem on epidural steroid injections, and this was published in Spine in late 2020 by Oliveira and Maher and colleagues, and they asked the question, for patients with sciatica, do epidural corticosteroid injections safely reduce pain and disability? Uh, so this was a meta-analysis of randomized trials, and it's an update to a previous Cochrane review. This was specifically looking at patients with low back pain associated with sciatica. And it could be based on a clinical evaluation alone or imaging, and the patients with spinal stenosis or previous surgery were excluded. They found a total of 25 studies with <clears throat> about 2,500 participants comparing steroid with placebo or local anesthetic only. The quality assessment found that failure to mask study personnel or outcome assessors, and in some cases, patients, was common. So those are limitations. Uh, they found that leg pain decreased significantly in the immediate term, which is the first couple of weeks, about 15 points on a 100-point scale. So that's significant. Much less between two weeks and three months, only five points, which is probably not noticeable. And there was no benefit in the longer term beyond three months. Back pain was only improved in the immediate term, 11 points on a 100-point scale, which is borderline clinical significance. There was no significant reduction in back pain during any follow-up beyond two weeks. Disability was also decreased in the short and medium term, but it was a fairly small effect size. Uh, adverse events included 
headache and increased back pain in some patients, but they weren't uh, well or consistently reported. They also didn't report safety. So bottom line, epidural corticosteroid injections provide a small, clinically probably meaningful benefit in the very short term, but kind of getting questionable beyond two weeks, uh, a small to moderate reduction in disability in the short to intermediate term, but uh, not in the long term. Uh, they, we don't know about adverse and safety, adverse events and safety. They weren't terribly well reported. So, you know, some benefit, but really only short term. Don't expect much beyond two weeks. John? And that's what I tell patients uh, who go for these injections, which are still quite popular, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, I tell my patients if they mention that to me, <clears throat> that they should not have great expectations. By the way, I'm reading Charles Dickens lately. But they shouldn't have any great expectations that they will get great pain relief. It's probably going to be temporary and not much. So they need to be realistic and to continue the other things that we know can help chronic back pain. It was the best of injections and it was the worst of injections. <laughs> While we're going all Dickens on, on folks. Yeah, so yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think on the other hand, you could argue that, hey, let's help the orthopedic surgeon and let's set the patients up for a good placebo effect and say, you know, this really helps some patients in the short term. Probably won't help beyond three months, but boy, a lot of patients get a lot of benefit early on. I mean, we're, they're going to do it. You know, might yeah, as well. interesting approach, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have lots of interesting. Yeah. Approaches. Not, not dishonest. That's, that's fine. <laughs> okay, what do you placebo think? Effect. Yeah. I think I, I go a little bit more with the, um, I, I aim for optimism, which is always a stretch for me as a natural born cynic, but, um, I think it's, I, I lend more, I lean more towards the, I'm never surprised when it doesn't work, uh, mm -hmm. like, like so many things in medicine, because it, it doesn't for, for many people, or, you know, we know that this doesn't fix the problem. Um, so, you know, there, we, we've learned before that I, apparently exercise is the only thing that really makes people feel better in the long term, but this may improve their function enough that they are able to, you know, get back on their feet to, to be able to walk a couple of blocks or to be able to, you know, get back to the pool or whatever it is that they're, that they're able to do. So this is one where I feel maybe slightly less cynical than, than with some other things, because there, there actually is some reduction in disability, even if it is, you know, pushes out to the intermediate term that that's better than we get with so many things. So I'll take it. Sounds good. Henry. Final comment? Yeah, I think that the general theme is that if somebody wants to inject something into a joint, tendon, spine, whatever, for a painful condition, it's highly unlikely that it's going to be better than a placebo. That should be your first knee-jerk response. I know I've had uh, steroid injections in my knee a couple of times, and I found in one, one time a large benefit, another time fairly minimal benefit, but maybe I just maybe the placebo just wore off. Okay, and time to turn it over to John for his poem. This is a very interesting study about a topic that we know a lot about, but this provides us with a fresh look at disparities and outcome of COVID. This was published in JAMA Network Open just last week. It's well known that Black people in the United States and the UK, at least, are more likely to die of COVID-19 infection than white people. The past studies that have been done have shown that this is due primarily to a higher rate of COVID-19 infection and a higher rate of comorbidities, that is, chronic diseases in Black people. The prior studies that we've seen, at least in the United States, have only involved single hospital systems, and indeed, they have shown no difference in mortality between Black and white patients who were hospitalized for COVID-19 infection. 
This study I'm going to present, however, includes many hospitals, and it's by far the largest study in the U.S. to date to examine the mortality differences between black and white patients hospitalized for COVID-19. In a quite a sophisticated statistical analysis, the investigators adjusted not only for the usual suspects, that is socioeconomic and patient uh, comorbidity factors, but also looked at differences in where the patients were hospitalized. The primary outcome they used was inpatient death combined with admission to hospice care within 30 days, which sounds a, a little uh, funny, but they justify this saying that these hospice care patients are probably those likely to die at any rate, and there's a difference in, in uh, rate of hospice use between black and white people, so they call this a mortality equivalent. The study included medical records of 44,000 Medicare beneficiaries admitted to 1,188 U.S. hospitals in 41 states and D.C., from January 1st through September 21st of 2020. So this is a really, really big study, much bigger than the prior studies. In the study, 66% of the patients were white and 24% were black. Overall, 1,100, that's about 10% of the black patient side, and 2,634, about 8% of the white patients died as inpatients, and then in terms of the hospice admissions, there were 350 black patients and 1,670 white patients. So again, we see the white patients disproportionately used hospice care. On the initial analysis, there was no sig statistically significant difference in the unadjusted mortality rate. It was 13.48 for blacks and 12.86 for whites. So the odds ratio is 1.06, so no statistically significant difference. Now, after they adjusted for the usual clinical and socio-demographic patient characteristics, the black patients indeed were more likely to be die or discharged to hospice with an odds ratio of 1.11, so roughly 11% uh, difference. It's, odds ratios don't translate exactly that way, but that's roughly the difference. Now, here is the, here is the very interesting uh, outcome of this study. When they adjusted for the hospital that was caring for the patient, there was no difference in mortality. The odds ratio was 1.02. And they, they tested this by doing a simulation which they artificially placed the black patients in the same hospitals as the white patients and came out with the same thing, no difference. So in other words, the black patients had an overall higher mortality rate because they were disproportionately hospitalized in the hospitals that had higher overall mortality rates. A very, very interesting study. I think what this does in my mind is tell us that at least within a given hospital, there doesn't seem to be any discrimination uh, in caring for black versus white patients because at least the outcomes in terms of mortality are the same within the same hospital systems, it appears. It's just that more black patients go to hospitals that don't have as good outcomes. So uh, a very different and I think a useful look at the difference in mortality rate between blacks and whites hospitalized with COVID. And I, I certainly wonder if this applies to other uh, illnesses as well. What, what do you think about this, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly one interpretation of the study would be that, that this sort of, you know, 
puts words and numbers and, you know, and rates to when we talk about structural racism, it, this is the structure, right? Like it, this is the physical mm -hmm. structure. It's the mm -hmm. differences in hospitals, right? Because when you put black patients into lower risk hospitals, they, they actually have lower risk. Um, and, and so that may be, you know, one possible conclusion to, to draw from this study um, is that, you know, when you, when you sort of try and draw out um, that aspect of, of risk, um, that, that you can actually change outcomes. Um, and, you know, the, the, the next step would be, well, then how do we actually, you know, make those outcomes? How do, how do we break down that, that, you know, embedded racism so that those outcomes are different from the start instead of having to, you know, have these differences in, in death rate um, at all. Uh, so, yeah, like you said, 11%, that's, you know, that's 11%. That's a lot. It seems like we attack this by improving care in the hospitals that don't provide such good care. Then it's a question of what elements are there? What what aspects of care in those hospitals? Is it lack of resources, lack of, you mm -hmm. know, equipment, lack of staff? Uh, is there other staffing differences? Uh, lack of nurses? funding. Yeah. So there's just lots and lots of things to think about. I think it's a really important area of research. And I, I agree with you, John. I'd love to see this uh, methodology applied to other conditions like cancer care and care of cardiovascular disease. Henry, any final thoughts? I, th I had many of the same thoughts that you had. And what this tells me is this recurring theme that we've had over our podcast the last couple of years. Not only is the American healthcare system broken, it also reflects most of the inequities for race and socioeconomics that we have seen. And that you know, thinking about these hospitals that, you know, not all hospitals are created equal. We know that the inner city hospitals are often overcrowded, high demand, but they're also because of compensation models, low payments, um, um, that they are often understaffed and don't have the same kinds of resources. And so while they do the best that they can, they often are um, handicapped in that capability. Well, thanks, Henry, and uh, good discussion. Um, great, great selection of uh, studies this week. Um, I think you're going to help us finish up by talking about the quiz. The quiz, remember, asked which of the following diseases are not transmitted by mosquitoes? Malaria, West Nile virus, dengue, typhoid, or yellow fever? So the CDC's Yellow Book was the source for this information, and it's a great resource for travel-related illness. There's a print version that they update every couple of years and the online source more frequently. Uh, among other things, the Yellow Book includes preventive strategies for travelers, as well as encyclopedic details on many illnesses, and is both infectious and non-infectious. Now, of the conditions listed, only typhoid is not transmitted by mosquitoes. That's transmitted through the fecal-oral route. Certainly, there are many other more potentially deadly illnesses that are transmitted by mosquitoes, such as chikungunya, uh, Zika, filariasis, and many, many others. <clears throat> As a result, this is why mosquito uh, prevention, preventing bites from mosquitoes, is, is really an important measure. Oh, by the way, it's only the female mosquitoes that bite. Just saying. 
effective measures, uh, things that you can do to prevent that would be to wear long sleeve shirts, uh, long pants, to wear boots and hats, tuck in those shirts, tuck your pants into the socks and wear close uh, toed shoes instead of uh, sandals. Now you can also enhance that by applying something like permethrins to the clothes or to any gear that you might be carrying. Now the CDC also recommends um, several repellents that you can apply to the skin, DEET being the, the main one, but picaridin, oil of lemon eucalyptus, something called IR3535, which is found in Skin So Soft Bug Guard Plus, not in the other Skin So Soft products, but that specific one, and then something called 2-undecanone. So the correct answer is D-typhoid. So when we're up here at the lake, we like to eat outside as the sun goes down. Uh, over Lake Michigan. And that's when the mosquitoes come out, of course. And so what we've taken to doing, and this is a, a, a useful hack, it actually works reasonably well, if you can put up with the sound of the fan, is we have a large oscillating fan that we set up behind us, and it just blows the little buggers away. <laughs> they can't, Great idea. It just gets them out of our hair. It actually works. You just have to listen to a fan behind you, which on a hot night isn't always a bad thing. So anyway, Great information. And uh, and here I always thought typhoid was spread exclusively by women named Mary, but apparently it's, it's not. It's people. <laughs> um, so thanks, everybody, for listening today. Here's the Earl for getting CME credit. Go to IAFP.com, click on online IAFP education, and look for us. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. The IAFP designates this podcast for 0.5 AMA Category 1 credits. The IAFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. You can read our complete disclosure on the IAFP website if you're really bored. Hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.